Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. After, man, I think I started doing triathlon in Malaysia in 2011. So after, you know, 11 years of just riding bikes and not really following a proper training plan um, for the most part, I have recently decided, about five weeks ago, I decided to get a three-month training plan just to kind of get me focused and back into uh, the right space, I guess. Things got a lot busier when uh, we had a daughter, and I realized that I just can't get out for big rides anymore, and you know, I was only getting out for a big rides, so I wasn't doing little rides, which means effective training. And so I decided to get a plan, and uh, yeah, so I'm five weeks into it. Things have been going really well. I, you know, I have missed workouts. I've skipped days. I've rearranged schedules. That's cool. As Peter at the Consummate Athlete says, um, you know, try for eighty percent. Try to be eighty percent on track, and you'll be doing fine. I think I'm over eighty. Uh, well, it's hard to say, but. I do try to get all the workouts in, uh, with the exception of one weekend where I was helping my dad move a shed. Uh, it was a Saturday, which is usually the big ride, so I pushed it to Sunday, but then I skipped the Sunday recovery ride. So that was partly because, uh, yeah, I was beat. I was beat from that Saturday. That was absolutely brutal, hard work. Um, you know, so that's just the way it goes sometimes, and you have to make adjustments or. I think like last week I did a huge ride. Um, I was aiming for the Gatineau Park 12, but, you know, I didn't really take into consideration, uh, you know, lights. And um, for some reason I left them in my car and I knew I would get dark before I finished. So I just pulled the plug after having hit most of the points, but there were still like two or three out there I would have had to, to get to. And But it was a really good day of riding and I was thinking I was out there for like six and a half seven hours when I should have only been doing an hour an hour and a half ride so I just kind of rearranged my weekly schedule I felt like it was pretty good so yeah that's what I've been doing and I feel it I feel way better um there's a climb up to Pink Lake which is in the Gatineau Park it's really not a huge climb but um since I'm training with a heart rate monitor and um I get out there on some of these um easier going rides where it's just an endurance pace you know 75 percent of your maximum heart rate or lower and usually i'm pulling the baby and the chariot behind me so i've i've done a few rides up to champlain lookout which takes me past pink lake and 
even getting to Pink Lake, I was hitting like 85% of my maximum heart rate just because it's hard, you know. It's a big climb and you got a chariot with a baby in it behind you. And I did it again yesterday after, I think I've done it about three times. Um, cause sometimes I take different routes, but that particular climb up to Pink Lake, I've done it about three or four times in the last five weeks. And yesterday I was, I never passed 70%. I hit 70% maximum heart rate, but I didn't get past that, which is really cool. It's cool to see that there's a gain, you know, cause sometimes you wonder like, am I actually making progress or am I not, you know, what's happening? And it was really nice to see, you know, a 15% less of a maximum heart rate. So I never really escalated. I was just a chill, cozy ride all the way to the lookout. And I feel like I was going a little bit faster too. So that's great. Although I was using a different bike, but I don't think it had too much impact. Uh, but who knows? Uh, next up, I just want to give a huge uh, shout out to my wife. Um, in the you know past six, seven weeks, eight weeks, whatever it's been, it's been a while since the death of Masa Amini. My wife has been very active here in the within the Iranian community, attending every protest. Um, you know, it's something we've talked about a lot prior to this event, um, whether or not change would ever come to Iran and, uh, you know, such a sensitive subject. Um, and I always felt like something bad's going to have to happen. I mean, <laughs> lots of bad things have happened, but it's going to have to be, you know, something bad that happens that leads to more bad, uh, which typically means death. Until people say enough's enough. And it seems like with the death of Masa Amini, it has actually hit that, you know, tipping point where people have said no more. And that's unfortunate, but also fantastic, you know, unfortunate for Masa's family, but fantastic that the country is taking a stand and trying to, to put this regime out of power and... It's really good to see the Persian community come together the way they have. I mean, um, they've had some massive protests. I think they had like around 10,000 people out the one weekend uh, when they did the worldwide one with like uh, 100 cities around the world or 70 cities. Um, Toronto had like 50,000 people. I think they broke a record until until Germany did a, a all-Europe one where everybody came from all over Europe to Germany, to, to Berlin. So it's it's just really good to to see that you know they are so focused and determined and and in the country too um you know it's continuously growing the protests are they're not diminishing and they're getting bigger and bigger and actors actresses sports stars they're they're all kind of some more subtly than others but saying their part and um We'll see what happens. It's going to take time. It's not going to be a, an easy fight, that's for sure. But anyways, I'm just really proud of my my wife for being out there. And, uh, you know, whether she has to take leave from work, um, organizing, she's joining different committees and stuff. She's She's really on top of things. And she's paying very, very close attention and posting lots to, to share the stories, both in English and Persian, to so people that follow her can kind of know what's going on. So thank you, Seema, for being such a um, good role model for our daughter, who's half Persian. And even though she doesn't know it now, she'll, she'll be able to look back and go, wow. On that note, 
a completely separate note to that. Uh, I just want to thank the newest Patreon supporters of the podcast. I have a, a few of them. There's uh, Alexander Radan, uh, Mathieu Vallée, Nick Mitchell, and uh, welcome back to Jeff Phillips. He's a good buddy of mine, and he uh, he took a little break from supporting the podcast, but then decided to come back to it, and I, I really appreciate it, Jeff, so thank you. And um, yeah, actually, Jeff and Alexander Radan both took a um, advantage of the promo codes I had with Big Agnes uh, recently to to order some gear um, with a 35% discount. Uh, I posted it on Instagram as well. And uh, so, yeah, good on you guys. If uh, you do like the podcast, you know, quick little self-promotion here, but you can go to patreon.com slash bike tour adventures and um, help out in any way possible to, to keep this podcast going as well as PayPal. You can do one-time cash injections into the show just like that and Help out with the costs of running it and maintaining gear and upgrading and all that stuff and annual fees. Oh my god, um, that's how I know when Christmas comes. <laughs> so do annual fees. Uh, you can also purchase some merchandise from the website um, and social media pages. They all have links: um, t-shirts, hoodies, zip-ups, caps, things like that. And uh, if if nothing else. I would just absolutely adore it. I would love it if you could share an episode that you liked. You know, if you've listened to episodes and there's one that you particularly liked, if you could share it with your friends and family or anybody you think that might be interested, that would also be a great way to, to bring new listeners to the show, as well as writing reviews on whatever platform you use. I, I think most people tend to listen through, tend to listen through iTunes um, and Spotify, I think, is another big one. So writing a review on there would really help me to, you know, um, like visibility and all that stuff. So just more people get uh, pops up more easily on people's um, searches. Yeah, love it. Appreciate it. Um, Just a few more things before uh, jumping into this podcast episode. The Bikepack Adventures uh, website is uh, been updated with a. all the new Grand Departs so far for next year for the BT700's Grand Depart, the I think I've updated the dates on the Alberta Rocky 700, the BC Epic I think is updated, Canadian Shield bikepacking route, my route is up there now, the Log Drivers Waltz is updated as well. Mm, there is one, I forget what it is, maybe it's the Lost Elephant, they don't have a date yet, so... I'm just keeping an eye on that. But I've decided to do the Canadian Shield bikepacking route in September next year. Rather than, you know, really early July last this past year, I didn't feel like it was the best time. Um, people coming off of the BT700 or Canada Day weekend for that matter. Um, I did have a few people out there and that was awesome. It was really great to even have a small crowd and just uh, make it much more personal. But I've decided for next year, 2023, to have the Grand Depart on September 9th. I thought it would be really good in September because, well, it's a beautiful time of the year, as everybody in Canada knows. And what I like about doing it in September is it is not ridiculously hot outside. Um, You know, already by mid-July, it's getting pretty damn hot in Canada, and that kind of lasts until mid-August, late-August. I mean, September can be hot too, but it's not typically as hot. So I thought it'd be a good time. It's also cool at night rather than boiling. um, So you can get a nice comfy sleep. 
and there are no bugs, which is perhaps one of the best things about doing an event like that in September is, you know, as opposed to May, June can be really buggy in Canada. And I remember doing, a, well, prior to the Canadian Shield bikepacking route being called that, it was called uh, the Grando. I remember riding part of that with my buddy Carl and I've never seen anybody so ready to kill themselves just to avoid the bugs. Uh, so yeah, September seems like a great time. And uh, yeah, hopefully a bunch of people show up and we can go ride. Last thing before we go on is some news from Panorama Cycles, which is a bike manufacturer in Granby, just south of Montreal. They are uh, giving me a, well, loaning me a Chick Chalk fat bike for the winter. So I'm really excited about that because I, I know a while back, uh, Steve O'Shaughnessy said, he's like, dude, you got to get a fat bike. You just got to, you're, you're missing out. And I was like, yeah, but you know, parental leave, maternity leave, having a baby. It's definitely, definitely crushed our ability to, uh, to, to make another bike purchase. But, um, after an awesome inter uh, interview, an awesome discussion with Simon at Panorama, they have decided to loan me a fat bike for the winter. And on top of that, on top of that, this is the biggest news, is they're going to give Bike Tour Adventures listeners and followers a pretty sweet 15% discount, uh, which will apply only to the 2023 Panorama Chick Chalk Fat Bikes. That is their carbon fiber, top-of-the-line fat bike. There's two different builds you can get with it. One is with a combo of Dior and SLX, and one is with SLX and XT components. So anyways, 15% saves you something like $580 or $660, depending on the build, which, you know, as Canadians, is the tax you would pay on that bike if you live in Quebec. Slightly more than you would pay in tax if you live in Ontario, so you save a couple percent on top of the tax price. And if you're American, I don't know. I don't think states in the U.S. pay as much tax as we do here. So it's probably a, a good little saving anyways. Um, save a little bit more. And um, yeah. So check them out. PanoramaCycles.com and use the code BTA15 on the Panorama Chick Chalk to save 15%, which would be pretty sweet. Now, before we get into the intro to this week's podcast... I want to play the intro song. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring and bike packing. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys, and through both mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike touring or bikepacking and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. If you're already an experienced bike tourer or bikepacker, I hope that my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way. In the meantime, enjoy the show and keep on pedaling. In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, Kyle Henning and I speak about his first experience bike touring, which surprisingly 
was from the lowest point to the highest point in Africa. We also talked about some of the various volunteer programs that Americans can work in, such as AmeriCorps and the Peace Corps, what it's like to live in Ethiopia for two years, and we really dive into cycling throughout the region that he worked. Ten years after his first adventure, Kyle wrote a book called From Afar, One Man's Human-Powered Adventure from the Lowest Point on the African Continent to the Summit of its Highest Mountain. All proceeds from the sales of this book are going to be split between two charity organizations, one in the USA and one in Ethiopia, where he used to live. More recently, Kyle and his friend have started a long-term project that they call Low to High, with the goal of visiting all the islands in the world with a mountain of 3,000 meters or higher and riding from the lowest point on the island and getting all the way to the summit of the highest point. Kyle, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Hey everyone, just to let you know, I forgot to record the intro part where I say hi to him and whatnot, so it's just kind of straight into the conversation. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Kyle Henning. Yeah, you're from you're from Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. Is that correct, or is it a different city? Yeah, just outside of Buffalo. Mm. Nice. And um, yeah, so you're working in the. Is it okay to say I haven't? I can always cut this out, but is uh, you're working in the State Department? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I put that in the book. So okay, can... perfect. <laughs> General term, yeah. I don't want to get into like details of my job, but yeah, yeah fair enough. At least not on camera. Um, yeah, I have a few friends who've gone through your route, you know, Peace Corps to State Department, and that seems to be a uh, quite a commonality there. Um, so yeah, let's just get rolling right into it. Tell us, uh, tell us about yourself, Kyle. Who are you? What do you? Uh, what do you do? What do you? Uh, what's What's the story? My name's Kyle Henning. Uh, right now, I've got you know your standard nine to five job. <laughs> uh, but I do like to go out and, and travel in in ways that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I reached out to you is uh, I, I wrote a book about a bike ride I did 10 years ago through Africa from the lowest point on the continent, a place called Lake Asal. It's in Djibouti and it is it's down below sea level. It's this salty lake, oh, uh, sort of like the Dead Sea. Yeah, and rode my bicycle to Kilimanjaro and then climbed to the summit to the highest point. Oh, interesting, Kay, because I was going to ask you later, it's like, why did you start in Djibouti and not, you know, in Tanzania already or Kenya or something, you know, one of the big cities there? So, and that's exactly because it is below sea level, so it's absolutely the lowest place in Africa, yeah? Exactly, the the opposite of a summit. How far below sea level can you get in in Africa, it's like a Saul. Cool. And uh, yeah, yeah. so you basically, you kind of grew up um, next door to Canada. You're, you know, it's uh, Buffalo. You don't really get much closer to Canada unless you're you're on the bridge going over Niagara Falls or something. Um, what was it like growing up in the north of U.S., you know, in a smaller New York, well, New York, a city in the New York State that is not huge? Yeah, Buffalo's always overshadowed by new york city i tell people i almost give the full answer every time i'm from buffalo new york because if i just say new york everybody assumes new york city gotta be the city (laughs) Um, exactly but it's it's a lot smaller um many many times smaller than new york city and it's on the other side of the state um and like you said just across from the the border of of southern ontario yeah um, and my wife's from Michigan, so we actually end up driving through Ontario to drive from Buffalo to Michigan. Yeah, it'd be a lot faster, right? <laughs> Stretch a highway on the QEW. Yeah, yeah, way quicker. 
Um, is she from yeah. over by Chicago or something? Or is that is Chicago's not Michigan, is it? No, Michigan's Michigan further. Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know my U.S. states geography that well. I should know it better, but I, I don't. Um, you tell me much outside of Ontario yeah. and Canada. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, what was it like growing up where you grew up? Were you pretty adventurous family type thing? Or was this something that came around later in life? Or how did, how did all that go on? When I was younger, I was in Boy Scouts. Uh, my parents would go camping. So it was kind of a mix of car camping um what what i would consider today like you know kind of taking it easy bringing the cooler bringing the dog that Mm -hmm. sort of thing my parents always loved to be outside oh okay that's they didn't care if it was in the backyard you know especially buffalo like your winters are pretty intense so if you only have a couple months of summer you're gonna maximize it so weekends you know we would go uh camping if the weather was nice and, and all summer long um so yeah, I grew up sleeping in tents, uh, cooking on a fire, but at the same time, like, you know, shower down the road. It's it's not yeah. like you're out in the wilderness or surviving or anything. Um, when I got into Boy Scouts, then I started pushing the envelope a little more. And uh, the other guys in my Boy Scout troop, uh, you start getting competitive, you start getting a little yeah. older and it's like, yeah, let's, let's go get a little more gnarly. And uh you know, just going out on our own for a couple of days and trying to just survive out of what we Oh, that's awesome. Place. Yeah, I wasn't a very good Boy Scout. I think they asked me not to come back just because I dicked around a lot and I wasn't really a, that team player they look for. <laughs> like, this kid's a hopeless cause. Like, so, yeah. Um, and so being from oh, Buffalo... I, I oh. make it to Eagle Scout, but, uh, you know, I had fun camping and just hanging out with guys. Mm-hmm. It, there were things about the program. It, it just felt like more school. I was like, oh, I don't yeah. want to learn this. Not, nah, I don't want, you know but it was a great opportunity to just get outside and get yeah. the trails. Yeah. And be, and being from where you are, are you guys big into the winter sports too? I would kind of do everything I did in the summer in the winter. Um, I didn't get into skiing or like winter specific okay. sports. Um, growing up, it's actually like skis are expensive and you mm-hmm. have to buy lift passes. And that was a little bit out of the means of my family. Yeah. But, um, you know, I had a mountain bike when I just, take a little air out of the tires and go right in the snow until I got completely buried. Perfect. Yeah. I, I, I did grow up with skiing, but now having come back to Canada three, three and a half years ago, I still haven't bought downhill skis or snowboard. I've got some cross country skis cause there's no pass needed. Equipment's pretty minimal. Like I bought it all mm-hmm. used and you know, I was like, I, I don't have infinite amounts of money and I tend to spend more on bikes these days. So other sports, well, I'm just going to have to do the easier way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, how, when did you first do your? Uh, did you ever do a bike tour before this adventure from low to high Africa? No, that was my first one. Are you shitting me? Okay. Uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It it became apparent very quickly. I may have bitten off more than I could chew. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was I was living in Ethiopia already. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, so. I, I had this advantage of knowledge, like language and culture, and I had been in East Africa for two years before mm-hmm. I set off. And I knew how to mountain bike. I knew like the, some basic mechanics of how bikes work, but I had never done more than like an overnight ride where I stay at a hotel and then bike back. Okay, yeah, yeah the and I set off with uh with with two months on the horizon. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a. Uh... 
were you were you involved in like the teaching English aspect in Peace Corps? Was it more the community development? Because I know there's a couple different programs they typically run. Uh, well, I mean, that, that's what I knew they ran in Ukraine. Um, I had friends that mm-hmm. did Peace Corps there. And I was in Russia at that time, uh, way before the wars and, you know, annexing territory and stuff. Um, what was your kind of role in the Peace Corps? How, what did you do? And how did you decide that you're going to go do the Peace Corps and go to Africa of all places? Because that's, you know, Ukraine's pretty westernized and you're, you're you're really jumping into the deep end of the pot, you know, or the deep end of the pool, so to say, um, going to Africa. That's a huge difference. What made you decide to, to go for that? Um, Africa was intentional, that that's where I wanted to go. Um, the How I got to the Peace Corps, it, it was a couple steps. Um, I was in Buffalo. I had earned a degree in music. And I was studying the music industry. I was going to work in oh, wow. sound engineering yeah. and, and recording and marketing and developing bands. Um, I graduated in 2005, and that was when music was moving online. Napster was gobbling up all the, uh, you know, it it was illegal downloading at the time. Yeah. It would eventually blossom into Spotify and everything else. Um, but the industry was built on this old model of selling albums and selling mm-hmm. merchandise and getting bands out. And that's what I learned. And it became irrelevant very quickly when, when music moved to the internet. So 2005, I graduate. I have this degree that um, is quite outdated and didn't really know what to do. I worked at a bank in Buffalo uh, for a little over a year. And while I was working at the bank, Hurricane Katrina happened uh, Mm. in the southern united states it hit louisiana mississippi and caused a lot of devastation and uh i was both shocked and appalled at at what had happened and that uh a hurricane could cause so much destruction in a place and you know it's the united states we yeah we, we always pride ourselves on being this this developed nation and and great infrastructure um, and and there's been hurricanes from the from the time I can remember. I remember yeah, it's hurricanes. not a new thing in the uh, U.S. Yeah. Right. right, we should be built for this. We should be able to weather the storm. And it just destroyed the city. It was underwater, and I was I was shocked. I was really taken back by that. At the same time, I'm working at this bank. I'm not loving it. it I, there's no passion there. I fell into it because I needed mm-hmm. a paycheck. Sure. Um, my passion had been music. It wasn't working. Um, so sort of in that like perfect mindset to like find a new passion. And when I saw that storm on the news, I wanted to find ways to go down to the South and mm. volunteer with the recovery effort. Oh, wow. So, okay. yeah. So I found this program before Peace Corps. I found a program called AmeriCorps. Um, oh, I've heard of that too. Yeah. Yeah. You could kind of equate it to the Peace Corps, but it serves domestically. Yeah. Um, so found a program that was training volunteers and sending them down to the Gulf um, joined up with them. The, the training was out in California, so I drove from Buffalo to California. They didn't fly you. Huh? <laughs> uh, they could have. I okay. chose to drive. Okay. I was like, Mom, yeah, I'd rather take a month off and go. Yeah, yeah I never really left the East Coast at yeah. all. I've been as far west as Ohio or something. So it's like let's let's go see the country. A friend of mine, uh, she, she packed up her bags, hopped in my car, we drove out to California, and then she flew home. So we had this great road awesome. trip on the way yeah. out. And 
yeah, plugged in with the team in California. That was like the first big trip. That's kind of kindling that that spark of, you know, wanderlessness and looking up and finding new things and exploring, right? Yeah, places I didn't think I would love. Like, you know, I I look on a map and you think like, oh, the planes are going to be really boring. I'm just going to like get through them as quick as possible and found myself spending several days in South Dakota just blown away. I'm like, this is much more beautiful than I ever imagined. Mm -hmm. You know, we joke in the United States about the flyover states. And then when you actually drive through them, you're like, this is, this is spectacular. Yeah. I (laughs) recorded a a podcast with somebody else recently and he said, he said the same thing. He's like, I flew over for years. I would fly over these parts of America and I'd be like, huh, I wonder what it's like down there. You know, one day, one day, maybe I'll go see it. And then of course he wrote, he wrote across the U.S. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah. My first time was, was driving out there and, um, I, I just liked it. I mean, you just watch every every day you wake up, you drive a couple hours and everything changes. Mm-hmm. So you did AmeriCorps and then that was kind of your entry into the the thought process of, hey, I could do stu- similar stuff, but internationally and, you know, help the world kind of thing or? Yeah, that. It took me, you know, down a different path. Like I'm, I'm always pursuing a passion with had been music was was now shifting towards this this humanitarian work. Um, you know, I barely earned any money. I, I was sleeping on floors in church basements yeah. and like, I loved it. I was like, I wake up every day and it's like, but what I'm going to do with the next 10 hours of my time is, is going to help somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's not something you can say for most jobs, especially yeah. working at the bank. So yeah, I, I, I wanted more of that. So, um, I'd always heard about the Peace Corps. I looked into it. Um, and ended up actively submitting my application to to be signed to Sub-Saharan Africa, um, partly because I just couldn't imagine any place more different than Buffalo, New York, than okay. Sub-Saharan Africa, and partly because uh, a cousin of mine married a man who is from Rwanda, oh, okay. and just getting to know him over the years and talking where he grew up and yeah. like this sounds wild like yeah if i'm gonna really broaden my horizons and go learn about a different part of the world i think i think that would really uh be about as far as i could go mm-hmm. you know just jump in head first before continuing on with the show i'd like to thank panorama cycles for sponsoring this podcast Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chickshocks Fat Bike, the Catadan Gravel Bike, and the Taiga Mountain Bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, and so you ended up getting um, sent to Ethiopia to 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 do um, your two years of service. Where were you? Were you in the capital or some other city? 
in a different city. Do you know Ethiopia at all? I'm looking at the map right now because I, I kind of okay. pulled it up so I could, like, as we talk through your adventure, I could kind of yeah. reference the map. Yeah, in the northwest of the country, you'll see a big lake called Lake Tana. Yeah, I see the lake. And right on the southern shore is Bahadar. Oh, okay. Yeah, small city, about two, three hundred thousand people in the area. And yeah, I don't see it. I see Gondar on the north. I guess it's a bigger city uh, north of the lake. And then, uh, but it'll probably, if I keep zooming in, I'm assuming it'll pop up. <laughs> yeah, on the south end. Yeah, Gondar wasn't too far away. Nice. And uh, what was your what was your two years like in Ethiopia? Oh, I see. Bahirdar. Yeah. Yep. So you were right um, on some water too, which is pretty sweet. Like I'm, I'm sure big party weekends at the lake or something. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of travel books call Bahadar the, the Riviera of Ethiopia. It's a really mountainous country, but then it's got this big lake, and the town I was on was was right there. Um. And on the southern bit, there's this little harbor, so it's just protected, calm water. There's hippos there. It's, oh wow! It's pretty, yeah, it's cool. A lot of migratory birds come in. They fly from Europe all the way down and and come down in the winter time. Like beaches and um, stuff too, or is that more natural no, than not really that natural? It's 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 some agriculture. It's it's really volcanic and rocky. There's okay. not really beaches. Um, not like a sandy beach, but you yeah, know, a couple places in the city, kids jump off the piers and things. Oh, cool. And uh, there's hippos in the water. I'm not going in that. Yeah, no, no, not if there's hippos. Yeah. I just imagine like everybody just chilling in the water, but no. <laughs> and uh, what was your what was your role? Where you, like I mentioned earlier, I think I knew like people doing educational, like teaching English, community development. I don't yeah, know. Did my, they? Have... The the focus of my time there was public health. Oh, okay. Um, almost all of that was focused on HIV. Oh yeah, HIV prevention. Yeah, reducing stigma. Um, trying to set up programs that help HIV positive people find work, um, especially HIV positive women. They might be single moms. Yeah, um, they got two kids in school and they're HIV positive, and no one will hire them. It puts them in a real, you know, impossible. Yeah, and just to teach so that, just because they're HIV positive doesn't mean they're going to spread it to you. It's not like it's not a you know touching contagious disease. It's a it's manageable, you know, and um, so I guess, yeah, a lot of community community work on that to to develop that awareness. Huh? Yeah, a lot of awareness about how the virus actually transmits and what it does in the body, and um, also that like just because someone has HIV doesn't mean like they did anything wrong. Mm -hmm. It's um, I think people assume the worst sometimes in somebody who is HIV positive about how they contracted it, and it's like there's you know you you don't know where this person got it and it's none of your business and at the same time like antiretroviral drugs have come a long way yeah people live long full lives and yeah. you need somebody to do this job and here's a person looking for work are they so, accessible are the the you know the the drugs are they accessible in places like ethiopia i know we're not even no. talking about bikes yet but that's okay <laughs> no, no, it's all good it's, um at this moment i don't know yeah. um i haven't i haven't followed it that closely since i left but uh at the time the drugs were available for free to most people okay um through funds from the european union and then a program for the united states government called pepfar okay which was some long acronym the uh president's emergency plan for aids relief okay the, yeah george w bush era program that uh brought a lot of money to to africa for, mm. 
uh, HIV prevention. Well, that's cool. That's good to know. Uh, yeah, my, my, I had an uncle who passed away from uh, AIDS in the 80s. And, you know, at that time there was no, there there weren't money drugs that helped. And it was all kind of trying to figure it out at the time, right? So he unfortunately didn't, uh, didn't make it past that. But uh, so it's good to see people are out in the world trying to raise awareness and, you know, show the positivity and what can still happen and how people can, you know, still succeed and live healthy, well, generally healthy lives and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, yeah. and it's, it's really a, a, a testament to, uh, you know, I was there for two years just trying to tell people to like treat each other with more respect and, and mm-hmm. help them find work. I, I'm not an immunologist. I don't, I don't, at the end of the day, know like the, the intricacies of yeah. how these things work. So like my hat is off to the people who develop these drugs and, and the programs that make them available for free around the world. Yeah. I and mean, that's really a game changer for everybody. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into, you know, two years into Ethiopia and what made you decide to, well, like what, what originally, what brought up the idea of cycling, first of all, doing a bike tour and secondly, why that route? Why low to high? How did that come about? When I was in AmeriCorps, at some point, uh, I read the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Okay. Um, it's a book about climbing Mount Everest in the 90s. And it's a year when a lot of, uh, there were too many climbers on the mountain, there was a big storm, and then there were a lot of accidents. Mm. So um, it it details, uh, it, it gives a timeline of what happened, who tried to rescue who, how all these things went wrong. It really sort of like reverse engineers the catastrophe. It's it's a really interesting book. Um, in that book, there's a character. He's a Swedish mountaineer, and his name is Joran Krop. Okay, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's spelled with a G. Um, Isn't he the guy from Rocky? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's um. He's a Swedish mountaineer. He was on Everest. He had already climbed K2. Like he had some real climbing credentials. Yeah, I've heard the name. Um, but he had ridden his bicycle to Mount Everest from Sweden. Ah. And he brought his whole kit with him, rode to the base of the mountain, and then climbed up to the summit. And the book wasn't even about him. It was just sort of like this passing mention of all these things are going wrong on the mountain. Here's here's what... Uh, you know, Everest was like in the in the mid '90s, and also, hey, this wacky Swedish dude rode his bicycle here and brought everything with him. And I I couldn't move past that. I'm like, who is this guy? And I couldn't really find much information on him. I finally dug up a book that he had written um, about that. And so, you know, here's 400 pages of just that adventure of him biking from Sweden to Everest, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. So I read that thing cover to cover a couple times, and then when I got to Ethiopia, I just started looking at Kilimanjaro. Wouldn't it be awesome if I could bike my way down there and sort of emulate what he did mm-hmm. and looking at all the countries around. And it's like, you know, the lowest spot on the continent is actually a little bit to the North. So why don't I start up there and, and not so far from where you were too. So accessible. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's, it, 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 when I looked at the totality of it, it all seemed insane because I'd never done a bike tour before. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it, a lot of uh, lessons learned along the way. Um, but yeah, it's like when I take every little piece, like, okay, Djibouti is one country over. This 
lake is in a park essentially with a road down to it like yeah i could start there why not so tell me um i know in your videos uh, i watched through all the videos because i know you sent me a book and i haven't had a chance to uh it hasn't arrived yet but um you did mention at one point about your girlfriend i I believe you had a girlfriend at that time right is that correct it was just like because i had um yeah what did your girlfriend, parents, friends kind of think about this idea or other Peace Corps volunteers? Were they just like, are you fucking crazy? Like, <laughs> or what, what were their thoughts? Yeah. What was the? It, it was all some version of that. It was, um, you know, people were really worried for my safety and rightfully so. Like I couldn't see at the time how like blind and naive I was. Mm-hmm. But I had this idea and I was going to do it and nobody was going to talk me out of it. Yeah, because if you'd have told people I'm going to cycle, you know, 4,000 miles or whatever across USA, they'd be like, okay, go for it. But like to say I'm going to, you know, even a, a fraction of that different distance, sorry, um, through Africa and through like some pretty gnarly roads and stuff. And, um, you know, the, the mindset must be different. People must have been just like, what the, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um especially my parents i mean i think a lot of people were were very willing to share their concerns and and vocalize them a lot where when i told my mom she just got quiet she just like near silence and was like oh she's she's not happy (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah uh i i kept justifying it as like you know i'm in shape i've got a good enough bike and I've been living in East Africa. I, I'm not completely new to this part of the world. So I think I can handle myself. True. I think every time I talked to them, I was just trying to further reinforce it for myself because I knew it was a foolish idea. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it at all. Mm -hmm. And prior to, to doing this, had you actually, had you been to Djibouti or was this kind of a, one more new country to, you know, at the start of the adventure. Yeah. I'd never been there before. Never been there. It was my first time. What was it like? Cause it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty small country. It's a, it's, it must be, maybe it's the smallest in Africa. I'm not even sure. I'm just looking at the size of it and it's tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. Um, it, it's really different from Ethiopia. That was my, my point of reference. Um, like Africa is really diverse. I know this one little, corner of one country so i get to djibouti and it's it's completely different the weather's different the language is different so it was really fun to be like okay this is this is new and exciting um it's it's architecture is like a mix of french and uh like arabic architecture okay it's it's not far from yemen mm-hmm. just over the the red yeah, sea it's very um, close right yeah so historically it's just a lot of a lot of trade so when the cities were built they sort of fed off each other um and i was i was just fascinated by it all like it really felt like uh i had gone to a whole new world even though it was just like an overnight bus ride oh yeah yeah and um did you go straight like it was the end of service and that's where you were going or was there like an intermediate time of whatever i don't know I signed the paperwork officially ending my Peace Corps service and was on a bus the next morning. Okay. And so your bike, did you, did you bring that? It was, it was a Trek 920 or something, or I couldn't tell what it was, but it was a Trek. I knew that much. 
It's a Trek. Yeah, it was a an 820. 820. And yeah. did you bring it with you from the U.S. to Ethiopia? Or is it something you picked up while you were there and just decided that this is um, like, was it a daily commuter while you were in Ethiopia? Or was it just towards the end of your time that you bought this? How did that all happen? I had this idea <clears throat> to ride down to Kilimanjaro and I had a daily bicycle that was uh, this Chinese made, you know, 200 pound steel monstrosity that just broke down all the time. Like that's what I was riding to work in Bahadar. Okay. Um, it was called a Phoenix fashion. That was the, <laughs> the, the name and brand of the bike. Yeah. Should have um, kept it. <laughs> oh, it. It was, it was, it was painful. Um, I knew that that bike wasn't going to make it. And I just started talking to some other Peace Corps volunteers and some of my Ethiopian friends, like, Hey, this is my plan. And they're like, I hope you're not taking that bike. But everyone started to, to know that I was, you know, the kid with this crazy idea in Bahadar. So another volunteer, a Peace Corps volunteer in Tanzania, coincidentally was cycling North into Ethiopia and he was connecting with Peace Corps volunteers through couch surfing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so when he was in the southern part of the country, the Peace Corps volunteers down there are like, you got to meet this guy up north. He's doing exactly what you're doing. And he comes up, he stays at my house, and I'm telling him the plan. He was denied a visa to Sudan. He wanted to keep going up to Egypt. Oh, okay. So he's like, you know, Ethiopia is actually the end of the line for me. Would you like this bicycle? Oh, he just sweet. gave it to me. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is great. Like, I already knew it was, like, battle-tested, right? He had yeah. ridden it up from Tanzania. It was a tough bike. That's sweet. And if it was good enough for Peter, it was going to be good enough for me. Yeah. And how many, like, were there a lot of um, Peace Corps volunteers in Ethiopia? And, and did you guys hang out quite, like, I mean, not often, obviously, but uh, when holidays came and stuff? Or was it more even international than that like you know multi countries hanging out or getting together in the summer or whatever there were i think you know less than 100 volunteers at the time peace corps volunteers around the whole country and the, and the country's pretty large mm -hmm. um so i would see the people who lived nearby me pretty often you know every other weekend or something yeah. um but for the most part all my my day to day was with my Ethiopian coworkers mm -hmm. and friends I made in town. Um, the international community for me was quite large. Bahadar had a big draw because it's it was a good uh, quality of life there. Okay, yeah. So a mix of Canadians, Nigerians, oh yeah, wild, a lot of yeah. Europeans. Yeah, yeah. When my buddies were in the, uh, in Ukraine and they were all in the east of Ukraine, I, I knew well. So I knew two guys from my time in Russia that joined Peace Corps after they were. Um, forget what program they were with but it was an exchange language program in russia and then they ended up joining peace corps and going to ukraine uh so the one guy was right in the east i'm fairly certain that it's now i don't actually know until the war no it would be on the west of the occupied donetsk region so but like yeah. just west you know yeah. and i was there in 2007 so this is well 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 before conflict it's hard to imagine, you know, I traveled a lot through that region and uh, all over Ukraine, Crimea, Donetsk, all the, everywhere. And uh, yeah, to see what happens. And yeah, it was really interesting. But everybody in the summer would have, I forget, was like a month off and it was just travel and partying and it was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it was good times. Peace Corps people know how to party. 
Yeah, no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so you had a Trek 820. Um, tell us about your your setup. What gear you took with you? How how you prepared? Um, I mean, it must there must have been some challenges to that because you were already in country and it was unplanned and kind of all you know, not necessarily last minute, but difficult to resupply things you need. So, yeah, um, when you were looking at your map, you saw the city of Gondor, and going from Bahadar to Gondor just became my main training route. So uh, okay. about. Yeah, it's about 100 miles, 160 kilometers, mm-hmm. I guess, um, between the two cities with, with two big mountain passes. So I just, I set the goal. I want to be able to do that ride on the Trek 820 in a single day. Okay. If I can do that, then I'm ready to go. So You said 100 miles, yeah? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good day's ride. And what were the roads like for this training ride? Is it all paved or? Yeah, that. That bit was all paved. Yeah. That was a good stretch of road. Um, and the roads in Ethiopia at the time, a lot of them were really new. So um, I think some of them have fallen Chinese money or air since. Yeah, a lot of Chinese, but I think also some like Italian companies were there and oh, okay. it was a mix. Um, and yeah, I, I, I can't speak to, you know, 10 years of driving heavy trucks over and what they look like now in some parts. Yeah, but, for sure. Uh, yeah, when I was there, uh, the roads were, were new, they were fresh, and just good riding. Awesome. All right. And um, what kind of things did you pack? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the weather's like even. Like, I'm assi- assuming it's hot, but did you have a sleeping bag, a tent? Um, did you- I-, I know you carried hiking boots with you. Uh, what else? What other kind of things? Trekking poles, I think I saw. Yeah, it was um, all around the equator. I didn't go, you know, I crossed the equator at one point on the trip. So I went from the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern, but in the tropics the whole time. When I started in Lake Asal, it was uh, probably around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. What You're is Canadian? I don't know what that is. Yeah, so I don't know. 40? Okay, probably, yeah, like probably more than, more than, hotter than the human body. Sure, okay. Yeah, so hot and humid and, and miserable. So I'm, I'm, riding through that heat and going uphill in the wind. Um, but yeah, I have winter glo- clothes packed. I've got boots and, and, and heavy sleeping bag because I know I'm going to Kilimanjaro and it's a glacier on top. Yeah. So I'm packed for winter, even though I'm cycling through some extreme heat. Um, and like you two- lived for two years in a pretty green area, right? Like when I look at the map, there's, you know, it, it's fairly green. It's not straight up desert. But when I look at where you had to ride through from Djibouti, like there's a lot of desert sections, right? Yeah, Djibouti um, and into northeastern Ethiopia was was flat, sandy, rocky, and hot, yeah. and really dry. I mean, I, I crossed a couple riverbeds where there was no water to be seen. You just see camel tracks going through it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not like dead animals. Like <laughs> no, not. It wasn't that bad, but it was it, it was the start of a drought that actually lasted a couple of years. Oh and wow! Okay, yeah, it was. Uh, um, you know, the the people I, I spoke to were were concerned about it. They they had seen it all before, and they're like, "Yeah, I think we have another drought coming," and then that affects the crops and the livestock yeah. and everything else. Yeah, and which which is quality of life, and you know how much food you have to feed your families and gas money to to fill your trucks and whatever you know. So yeah, yeah all the above. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And they probably recognize the signs. So like you said, they, they could see it coming, right? Yeah. All right. So you, you packed up your 820. You, did you have a back, did you have bike racks front and back? What did you, how did you have it packed up? Yeah. I had a rear rack only. Okay. And I, you know, between AmeriCorps and Peace Corps, I had, I had no real savings to my name. I hadn't, I hadn't really earned an actual paycheck in five years at that point. <laughs> um, yeah. And also I had, had a couple hundred bucks saved up and I was like, what is going to be the most uh, crucial piece of gear? Like I can buy one thing and that's going to be about it. Um, so I bought two panniers, put it on that back rack. Um, and everything else was either stuff I had with me or stuff I was able to buy in Ethiopia. Mm. So the panniers were waterproof. So I put, you know, my cell phone, my camera, electronics, passport, all the things that's like, if I get wet, those things have to stay dry. Like that's a deal breaker. Um, but then I just took my, my overnight camping backpack, like my big rucksack mm -hmm. and just put it on top of the panniers and strapped it down with a bungee cord. Yeah. So pretty common. Lots of people do that. was my, my sleeping bag and my tent and everything. And lots of times I got rained on and my sleeping bag was just completely soaked. I didn't have enough room in the pannier to shove my sleeping bag into it. Oh, okay. So you just end up having yeah. a wet bag. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, and you looked like in your videos, it looked like you're pretty, well, I guess, cause you said you had to carry winter gear too, right? So you're pretty heavily laden down. Yeah. And since you only had a couple hundred bucks to spend, it's not like you have all the newest, highest tech gear. You just kind of, you got what you got, right? That's it. That bike was a couple years old and like, it was far superior to the the Chinese bike I bought in Bahadar. Yeah, but the Phoenix, was what was it called? Phoenix something? Phoenix Fashion. Fashion. How could I forget yeah. that? Yeah, very fashionable. Um but the Trek 820, I mean, really, it's a, it's like a beginner's mountain bike, right? That is not mm -hmm. a quality bike. It's not to take this much abuse. It was one size too small for me. And when I loaded it up with water on the desert stretches, all my winter gear, my own body, I'm like, I'm putting a couple hundred pounds of weight on this thing. Yeah. And yeah, it At least, started yeah. to just <laughs> yeah buckle, buckle under the weight mm -hmm. I had. At one point, I broke 14 spokes all at once. Did you ever figure out what caused that? Because, like, you, you were saying in the video, like, I have no idea how this happened. Like, all of a sudden, it was just, bang, shitload of spokes yeah. gone. I, I was just going down a paved road when one spoke went, and I think just there was just, it, it was so overloaded that when one spoke broke, it just went slightly out of alignment, the hub, and just took all the spokes That's on That's insane. You're so lucky it didn't yeah. collapse on you. Oh, I know. Yeah, trucks going everywhere, and yeah, I could have, I could have been on the, on the asphalt. All right, so take us through your route. It starts in Djibouti at um, what was the name of the start point? Lake Asal. Lake Asal. So is that the lake that's right on the border? I see, or is that uh, probably no? Not. It's not on the border. It's in. It's like right in the center of the country. Oh, okay. It's probably that one. It's the one that's. Yeah, not for, okay. Anyways, yeah, my for some reason my computer's super slow as it zooms in, but Africa's big, right? So that's why. Yeah. I see Lake Gubit. It's probably the one next to it. There's not too many lakes. That's the one thing that sees makes it easier. It's not like oh yeah, I see Lake Asal. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you started there, and um, yeah, tell us about your ride. Take us through it. Yeah, the first 
bit coming out of Lake Assault. Um, Got to be uphill. <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere to, nowhere to go but up. Um, really windy, really hot. Um, I was leaving in the middle of the day because I'm an idiot and, you know, just drenched in sweat. It was so, the, the crosswind was so intense. I couldn't even balance on my bike. So I had just like day one, I'm off the bike and I'm pushing it while, uh, tr- trying to get up this hill and, and the, the wind coming right off the Red Sea. Yeah. Um, and it's just roasting me. I just feel like I'm just like cooking from the inside out. Um, so I had to actually hide out at like two or three in the afternoon and just find some shade and lay under a rock. I'm like, wind should be a relief, but the air temperature is so hot that it's like, like I'm staring at a furnace. Mm. So I had to get out of the wind and out of the sun and just wait a couple hours for it to cool off before I could continue. It was, it was really hot and I I knew it was going to be hot. I had done my homework, but once I was actually there, I was like, this is, I think too much. You're like, like I, was... I miss the Riviera of Ethiopia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Bahadar is up high. It's, you know, it's 2000 meters elevation. So it's, uh, it's probably really nice pretty, weather. Yeah. It, it cools off at night. It's real temperate. Um, yeah, I was, I was not built for the heat coming from Buffalo and that was, that was some intense heat on the first day. Um, a couple days through Djibouti down into uh, this town in northeastern Ethiopia. Um, it's called Diradawa. I see it on the map, and I don't see any roads that get to it from the north coming south. You know, but I'm sure there are some. They're just probably really small. At this point, I think that road is paved. But when I was there, it was just a dirt track. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because it goes through like a town of Adigala or something, probably. That sounds right. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, I see a town. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, sorry. Now I zoomed in enough. I see all the little villages. There's still no road. It's just random names of villages in the middle of nowhere, but okay. they're in a line. So it must be the, the road to Diradawa. Yeah, there's a road there. It it was really rutted. I mean, it was dirt and just heavy trucks going over it all the time. So it just gets like, that washboard ripple. Yeah, and you got to ride on that just, just like a... Yeah, like a bucking horse the whole time. Did you ever consider that, like, if the the road you're planning to take is not even on Google Maps, maybe you should have routed differently? <laughs> uh, I mean, this was 2011, and I didn't have a smartphone, so like, oh, Google yeah. Maps wasn't even a factor. I, I had a paper map that I was. Oh, that's about. true. I was in uh, I was in Malaysia in 2011, and I was using MapQuest to navigate from across the country by car. But yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, the internet was so slow in Ethiopia and I didn't need Google Maps to get around my town. So I didn't, I wasn't even aware of Google Maps until I got to Nairobi on this trip. And this guy was staying with in Nairobi. He's like, why don't you use Google Maps? And he brings it up on his laptop. I'm like, what is this? This is (laughs) so much better. This is like magic. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So tell us, like, how was it to get to Diradawa? I mean, was this where... I mean, I watched the whole series of videos and it was really cool. Like just to see what you had to ride through, um, like the, just the roads and yeah, the washboard. Um, did you have any mechanicals at that point or that all kind of comes later? Most of that came later. Um, I, yeah, I made it through Djibouti and, and into Diradawa without, uh, too many mechanical issues, um, you know, flat tire and and like a broken screw on a pannier rack and things you would expect with 
with that sort of rough mm -hmm. road. But yeah, the the more catastrophic failures came later on. Fair enough. And um, yeah, so going from Diradawa, where did you go? I'm assuming that you didn't take the main highway. So I did actually. You did? Okay. Uh, yeah. So Diradawa is down down low. Um, that's all like where the Rift Valley opens up and that's like Somalia and half of Ethiopia are splitting away from the rest of the continent. So it's these high cliffs and this really like spectacular. That's uh, like going through like uh, Shasha Meme, Mene and Hawassa and all those places. That's the Rift Valley. Yeah. Basically yeah. That, that, that where the lakes are, right? Follows the valley. Exactly. Yeah. So from Diradawa, I had a big climb. I actually had to get out of the valley and up on top to the plateau. And I went, okay. I went a little out of my way. I was supposed to go south and west at that point to get down to Kenya, but I took a side trip over to uh, Harar, um, which is just this really fascinating I town. Yeah. yeah, and uh, it's like no other. It's this... Muslim city that they built a wall around maybe a thousand years ago. Oh, sweet. Um, yeah, and the inside is really well preserved. So you get these old houses, this old uh, architecture everywhere. And Is it like mud brick or something? Or It's it's mud, it's brick. I mean, they've been people have been building onto it for, for years and years okay. and years, um, but never really tore anything down. So everything's just kind of stacked on top of everything else. Um, and there is a herd of hyenas there that a guy feeds because it started in the past as like, if you feed the hyenas, your scraps, then they're fed, they're fat and happy. And then they won't come after your livestock. Oh, okay. So that was the mindset. And over generations, it's been passed on to, to a couple guys who are doing it now. And it's a tourist attraction now. So you can go there. And they bring out a couple buckets of camel meat, and you go and you feed the hyenas, and you hang meat from your mouth, and they come up and they, they give you a hyena kiss. That's nuts. How scary is that? Oh, it's terrifying. Like yeah. Okay. Th these are wild animals. They, you know, they're smart enough to know like this is a good gig. Maybe let's not attack these people. But I mean, they're not trained to do tricks. They're not domesticated. At the end of the day, it's still a hyena chomping its jaws a couple inches from your face. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I had a couple beers before I did that. I had to work up some. Courage. Yeah, I think I'd have had more than a couple. <laughs> Visit the washroom too after. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah. So keep going. You visited Harar. Sounds awesome. It's on my bucket list. Yeah, Harar was great. And then from there, I started covering a lot of ground. Um, I got out of the hills and the road got more straight and flat. So I was on my way to the capital Addis Ababa mm -hmm. when my rear wheel failed for the, the first time we mentioned a minute ago. That was the 14 spokes, just yeah, explosion. One, one spoke popped and then the rest went with it. And it was uh, very obvious very quickly. Like I'm not gonna be able to fix this on the side of the road. I'm like, I have a couple spokes packed, but like this is the entire wheel. Like it's, yeah, yeah it's in bad shape. Yeah, you might've had 32 spokes probably on that wheel, maybe 36. Uh, I don't know. And if you lose yeah. 14, though, that's a, that's a pretty big yeah. ratio. <laughs> it's about half. Yeah. You should check if that's a Guinness record. You might have said something. 
<laughs> Maybe. Yeah, like uh, most spokes broken without actually collapsing the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and still riding it. Yeah. So what'd you um, do when that happened? Did you just have to, you probably, I guess you had to hail down a truck or something, right? I did, yeah. I, I hitchhiked. I got picked up by um, uh, a, a group of aid workers all Ethiopians, um, and they were actually from Bahadar of all places. And I was like, "How have we never met before?" I mean, like, I lived fine. there for two years and was plugged in with the with the aid community there. And yeah, they they drove me to the capital, and the capital was almost in gridlock, lockdown, because um, that's where the African Union is, mm. and they have a conference every year. And we were coming into the city like as a conference was starting, so it was just police everywhere and road closures and. We almost couldn't get in. It was like the worst possible time to be in Addis. And, <laughs> city was like, and after two years, do you speak quite a bit of e- what? What's is it Ethiopian? Is that the name of the language, or is there the language I learned is Amharic? That's the national language. But there's, um, I mean, there, there's several languages mm-hmm. in, in Ethiopia. That's the only one I know. Okay. Do you ever get a chance to use it anymore? Do you, do you sometimes go to Ethiopian restaurants and? Order yeah, food today. Yeah. Today, my wife and I went to an Ethiopian restaurant for lunch. Oh, nice! And they're yeah. probably just looking at you like Washington you... D.C. There's a lot of Ethiopians here. Yeah, and I'm sure they like it. Just blows their mind when you if you order food in in their language. I'm hiring, right? So. Yeah, it's not uh, it's it's not too high on the list for a lot of uh, Americans to learn. So <laughs> yeah. they, they appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I use I've lived in a few different countries, and I go to, like a Korean restaurant and order food in Korean and. They'd be like, what the, how do you know Korean? But I'm not very good at Korean anymore, so just know a few words. Um, yeah, my America is definitely deteriorating. Yeah, it goes fast, right? Ten years and, uh, yeah, my Russian now, it's been 17 years or 18 years now. So, well, since I left, 2007. So, yeah, 17 years, just about. Um, it goes fast. You start to lose it. So you got the bike fixed and then I guess you continued from there. No, you went, you went back, right? You got a, you backtracked to where you were. Is that the, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I hitched the ride back out to where the wheel had broken. I was like, I want to, I don't want to skip ahead. Like to, mm-hmm. to do this repair. I want to, want to go back to where the breakdown was and continue. I wanted to, I had this goal. Like I want to do every inch from the lowest point to the highest point using just my body. Yeah. Or, for power right um so yeah, i hitched the ride out had my my wheel rebuilt and got on the bike ready to go and then did you take some extra spokes day. with you oh yeah yeah <laughs> but extra spokes um and a tool to remove the uh the cassette yeah big 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 time necessary yeah yep i didn't have it i had never in my life up to that point had the need to remove a cassette from a wheel. I and didn't even know it was a special tool. And then I got to yeah. the shop and the guy's like, you're going to need. You're yeah. Gonna need and most bike tours, tours would never take that on tour with them. It's because, you know, the odds are you're going to break one spoke or two spokes and you'll have a chance to get to a shop to fix it. But right. You know, nobody expects to blow 14 spokes at once. Um, yeah. So yeah, most people but don't even carry that. Tool, most but tours, you blow 14 spokes, you're buying a new wheel. Yeah, exactly. Holding it like I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you got back to the spot and then you just kind of carried on from there. Yeah, that was, um, 
like half the day to get out there and then, you know, had some lunch, got on the bike, started going. And I was really proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, I'm back to where I broke down. I'm going to be able to do every inch of this ride. And that same day I got to a bridge where this, there were security posted up on either side of the bridge and they were refusing to let me bike over it. Uh. They said the only way over this bridge is in a car. And I started, you know, I was hot. I was cranky. I just wanted to get on with this. So I started getting a little arrogant and arguing with the police. I'm like, how is me going over a car less of a threat than me going over in a bicycle? Like this is completely illogical. Maybe they're just worried you're going to get smoked by a car and on their watch. No, no, they weren't worried about my safety. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that that bridge is on the road to Djibouti. Ethiopia is landlocked, so that's okay. the port. So if that bridge is compromised, then the capital is cut off from the port. And that oh, okay. So it's a piece of critical infrastructure. I understand you got to protect the bridge, but it's like, what what harm am I going to do by crossing it on the bike? You know, and uh, I started arguing in Amharic, and then they got real suspicious, and then I heard the safety click off of the assault rifle that the police were carrying, and I'm like. I think I'm going to back down from this argument and say that you are the winner. <laughs> is that is that bridge in Metahara, like up there, just north of? Uh, a... yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lake there. I see that. I see the yeah. wa- the road going over the water. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> like this so, guy knows just a little bit too much of our language. Uh, yeah, it it. I was boxing myself every time I opened my mouth. I just made it worse. Yeah. So yeah, by by the time the uh, the gun was hot and I see the little orange dot, I'm like. I'm going to stop arguing and <laughs> just uh, get out of this situation. So I ended up yeah, hopping the back of a truck to go like less than a kilometer over the bridge and then get out and start riding again. Yeah, sometimes it's probably for the best just to uh... shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was... That was I was in my 20s, right? Shutting up was not necessarily my impulse. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it like? I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard ridiculous stories of, you know, Ethiopia and kids is it's Ethiopia, right? Where they throw the rocks and stuff. Yeah. That's, is it countrywide or is it just like certain parts or that happened to me? Um, it got really frustrating after a while. Um, it, it was almost the whole country and, uh, like almost all of Ethiopia and only Ethiopia. That's what I've heard. I've heard it's like literally you cross the border and yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I, that's kind of all I have, unfortunately. Like I've, I've lived in that country for years and I ask people like, why do kids do this? And I get different answers and they don't always make sense. And like, so what are some of the possible theories behind this? I've heard a mix from different people. Some of that just like, you know, these kids live on farms and they're bored and there's rocks everywhere. So they just like, they throw rocks at cars. They throw them at cows. And if you're on a bike, they throw it at you on the bike. They're not, <laughs> they're not necessarily targeting cyclists. They just throwing rocks at everything. Um, kind of past the time, which I can, I can understand to a degree. Um, but I've heard and, that like parents just like, I, somebody, I forget who I was interviewing, but they said like, yeah, hit by a rock and they like go to the parents like what's up and the parents are just laughing like everybody just, just like national pastime I guess I don't know yeah 
Maybe just, he'll be get hit by rocks, I guess. Just yeah. one really backwards thing. Huh? It just doesn't make sense, and it's probably no real good explanation for I couldn't find a good explanation. I, I just, like, it, it was really frustrating. Like, it hurt. I mean, I, I got hit with a couple rocks, and it didn't break a bone or anything, but it's just, like, this this cycling is hard enough, and now I got, yeah. like, you know, rocks coming down on me. Yeah, I, I, somebody told me that they bought a helmet just they typically don't wear a bike helmet, but they're like, I bought one just for Ethiopia because I don't want to risk getting hit in the head with a rock and, you know, fracturing my skull or something and having to get whatever, who knows. Right. But they're like, yeah. that was literally the only reason I bought one. I was like, that's, that's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate to hear. Cause I mean, cycling through Ethiopia is really great. It's, beautiful and the people are are great and the food is awesome so like it 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 can really be a lot of fun and then the kids throwing rocks can ruin that experience Mm. to the point where i've heard of cyclists just like hanging it up they get like three days into the country and they're like it's not worth it yeah 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 so i guess you gotta just mentally prepare like you see the kids up the road and you're like fuck here we go again yeah it's it, it it's hard to tune it out. I mean, you start to get on alert, and you yeah. see kids. And like I, I remember like seeing kids, and like a little knot would form, and I'm like, oh no, this is this is gonna go bad. And then the kids just saying hello. Like it's not every kid by any means. So yeah, okay, yeah. But, if it was every kid, you'd be dead, right? <laughs> right, but but you know, one kid, one rock, and it whacks you. Then it just ruins your mood. And then every kid you see after that, you start to be like, you know, it is is the next one about to come and sometimes it's just kids like you're, you're starting to behave like the security guard at the bridge you're like safety's off and you're like eyeing them <laughs> maybe <laughs> Roll, yeah roles are reversed yeah um i mean and, and like it was frustrating but it i don't think it was dangerous at any point and you know it, it never did so much damage that it wasn't able to ride my bike mm-hmm. it's just like oh it's this is frustrating and annoying, but they're kids, you know, you, you can't, you can only get so angry at a kid. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to ask you. I, I want to ask you like, what is, if people are biking through Ethiopia, what should they go see? But it's hard to ask that question because, you know, probably a lot of people try to avoid Ethiopia because of the kids and the throwing the rocks and, um, you know, just the risks associated with getting hit in the eye or in the head or whatever, you know? Yeah. I don't, know if i've ever heard a story though of anybody like being seriously injured yeah. by it it's just you know small rocks and it, it ruins your day it ruins your mood yeah but in and i'll i'll, I'll admit like my, my temper boiled over a couple times because of it but i still look back at cycling through ethiopia fondly it's a beautiful country it's really mountainous you can do some yeah. great rides yeah and and I'm assuming too, especially if you like, just take a few days and get off the bike and and experience some of the sights. Um, you know, it'd be even that much better. Cause... Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Lots to see and do there. So from Ethiopia, you crossed down into Kenya, presumably. Yeah, there's a border town called Moyale. That's where I crossed. Sort of right in the middle the border runs east-west and sort of right in the middle of that border line is the town. I see it. And um, was it in Ethiopia or Kenya where you had the crazy mud? That was Kenya. Oh, that was um, Kenya? Yeah. So That was insane. Um, 
the roads in Ethiopia for the, for the most part were were new and good. Like that, I did that training ride to Gondor all the time. Mm-hmm. That applied like all the way to the Kenya border. The roads were were great. That northeastern bit after leaving Djibouti, coming mm-hmm. into Ethiopia, was unpaved. After that, it was uh, like unbroken asphalt the whole way to the Kenya border, and then it stopped immediately. <laughs> so uh, okay, whatever. Whatever contract was building the roads, it only applied to Ethiopia. And did you get, you got, I'm oh, sorry to jump back, but like when you're up yeah. in the north part of uh, Ethiopia, you kind of got lost or something? Or is that just, I guess, mainly because you, like you said, using like MapQuest or paper maps and stuff, it's easy to get turned around and what happened? Yeah, it, I had a paper road map and uh, there were two roads running parallel for a bit and I didn't know if I was on the both roads were heading south am I on the eastern road heading south or the western road oh, okay south? I wasn't sure and the road I was on was getting pretty bad and I'm like this is this is so bad like this can't actually be the way so I was like let me double back to the junction point that there's a town there and I was gonna overnight and then see what the other road looked like in the morning I'm oh okay on the road that was 10 times worse than the road I had just been. Oh, yeah? Like, I, I guess I was right in the all along. So, <laughs> so then you had to just yeah. ride back that same section again to get down to yeah, the I ended up, yeah, I rode shitty road. Yeah. And it looked pretty bad. I don't remember which one in the video looked bad. It was the, the one you were on. or One of them was just like, it looked like a road that had gone through a war. <laughs> it was just like baby head rocks everywhere. No real yeah. path. I, I mean, just couldn't describe what it looked like. It was terrible. Yeah, that's the one I ended up not riding on. That was the wrong way. Mm. Um, but on the map, it looked more logical because my map showed that there were more towns on that stretch of road. Oh, okay. And and there were um, the railroad tracks were parallel to it. Mm. I was like, in my head, this has to be like, the more common route because of the tracks in the, the right. of town and yeah, it couldn't be further from the truth that road was really bad what's um what's the wildlife like in in uh in ethiopia like did you see like what kind of things did you see on your ride through um i don't know i don't know what's much about what kind of wildlife you'll see in ethiopia versus kenya versus i don't know tanzania but yeah um the wildlife in ethiopia is really different um Kenya, Tanzania, those countries make a lot of money from tourism for safaris. Mm-hmm. That's where you go, you see your giraffes and elephants and rhinos and zebras. Um, they exist in Ethiopia. They do live there, but not in anywhere near the large numbers like they do in Kenya. Okay. But Ethiopia also, you know, it's the mountains. It's a completely different uh, ecosystem. So they have a lot of animals that only live in Ethiopia. They have a species of wolf. They have um, an animal called the Walia ibex, um, mm-hmm. which is like a like a really big goat or antelope. It's got huge horns. It's like the size of a horse. It's really yeah, big. There was, a, yeah. there was a, a bike brand in Canada called Ibex at one point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a species of baboon that lives way up in the highlands. It's got really long fur all over it called a gelada. Um, and it's, 
I mean, Ethiopia is different from East Africa in a lot of ways and, and the wildlife included, like those animals don't live anywhere else. Yeah. It's very green. Like, yeah. When you look at the map, I mean, just the, the East is really, and, and like up by Diradawa, uh, Diradawa, uh, it's quite sandy, but judging by the Google maps, you know, but the rest looks pretty, lots of forest and like you said, mountainous, right? Yep. Awesome. So tell us, tell us about Kenya. What's it like to ride through Kenya? I mean, I, when I look at that map, there's a lot more desert, like you had to go through because going through Moyale, uh, below it is nothing but brown, uh, you know, which indicates sand on the map. Yeah, that is correct. The, the asphalt disappeared, um, right when I crossed the border and I knew Northern Kenya was going to be probably the hardest stretch of the entire ride. I knew that before I got there. Okay. Um, I had been reading blogs and websites and YouTube videos and, and getting as much information as I could about the route. A lot of, uh, people will drive from, uh, Egypt down to South Africa, the Cairo to Cape town route. Yeah. And, on that entire stretch, they say Northern Kenya is the worst of the entire continent. Okay. And yeah, people in four wheel drive trucks look at it as pure misery. And <laughs> I'm about to ride on it on a, you know, on a fully loaded bicycle. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was one of the roughest roads I've ever been on in my life. And it lasted for an entire week. And Every day I was going about 80 kilometers and just collapsing. I was so tired at the end of it all. Um, and the only, there were, there were a couple towns along the way and nothing in between. Okay. No, no, no way to get food or water, mm -hmm. no electricity um, until you get to these towns. So you'd really just have to leave with confidence. It's like, I, I have to ride 80 kilometers, like no matter what, I don't want to sleep out here. So you just, find that uh willpower inside to just keep going it, you know you're hurting you're sweating you're low on food but you just got to keep moving um it was sand and rocks the first couple days and then that's where you had also like there was a there was some rain right and be, i think it was oh no maybe that was later the muddy roads huh that, that, that was in northern kenya that was the, like the second half of the week and it's oh, okay it started raining and that place hadn't had much rain in a couple years and it just turned to mud like everywhere it, it was so flat that it like the world turned into like a, a an ocean that was only three inches deep i was like this is the weirdest thing i've ever seen i was losing the road i couldn't know where i was going and i just had to stop riding i'm like i can't get anywhere i'm pushing the bike through standing water with mud underneath it and no Gross. matter what direction i look in I, it's just more of the same it's just flat horizon of water where did what did you do to camp um when it was raining real hard i i couldn't even navigate like i couldn't tell which way was south anymore the sun was blocked out it was super cloudy so <laughs> <laughs> i saw some oil drums or water barrels or something like 50 gallon metal containers on the side of the road. So I just went over to them and there was a little tarp there and I just made a little makeshift shelter for a couple hours 
waited till the rain stopped and and a lot of the water had uh, either flowed away or or settled in. Um, found the road again and then kept riding, but I didn't make it to the next town. See, I had to camp out that night in my soaking wet sleeping bag, just you know, tent set up on a pile of rocks and mm. and yeah, it was not a comfortable night. And the idea was to make it town to town, right? It's like that was the original goal would be to get to the town to have a place to sleep and eat and recharge or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And out there they were having some uh uh some of the convoys were being attacked by people. Um even like trucks so it, it wasn't the safest place to be and i didn't want to be in my tent i felt that that was oh. too big of a risk so getting to a town was also shelter and security mm-hmm. so yeah setting up my tent just out in the middle of nowhere sleeping with one eye open while also in a soaking wet sleeping bag with rocks poking into your back just it was the uh you know the trifecta of misery yeah any any um animals that you'd have to be wary of while camping out like that um or is that more in the mountainous forested areas more in the mountainous areas i didn't see any animals out there okay. i mean there weren't any even any any trees or plants <laughs> it was just rocks for a couple of days yeah. yeah i remember i remember when i was in malaysia we were out uh, doing hash house harriers running one night in the northeastern malaysia where i lived and uh, you know, I was mostly with Chinese Malaysians and I was like, oh man, wouldn't it be awesome to see a tiger? And, and apparently in Chinese culture, you don't like to speak things like that because then it's going to come true. So all these like, you know, middle-aged Chinese women are <laughs> really angry at me. And yeah. I was just thinking like, oh, it'd be great to see a lion in Africa, but like, maybe that? not. <laughs> not under those circumstances now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, tell us how, did, how did it go once you got, uh, through the tough part of northeast Kenya, the road uh, was was really bad for seven days, and then I hit brand new asphalt. They were paving the road from the south, heading north, so it went from terrible road to literally brand new road that that only maybe like a dozen cars have ever driven on. And oh wow! I was like kissing the ground. I was so happy. Like, I knew if I could pass through northern Kenya, I'm like, I can I can do this whole ride. Like that is by far gonna be the worst part, and it's probably pavement all the way to mm. Kilimanjaro National Park. Um so yeah, that that was just complete elation. After that, you know, I was able to ride much further distances and not have the shocks. Uh the the road was so rough my my hands were going numb. The, the impact of the handlebars coming up into the... Oh, it's brutal. The, yeah, balls in my hands. Mm-hmm. I would stop at the end of the night and my hands would just tingle. And I wake up the next morning, they're still tingling. That lasted for, for days. Oh, wow. Okay. So that, that's pretty serious. Like I've known people yeah. to do like bike pack racing when you know you're... Um, which I do some as well. Where, you know, after three, four days or five days or a week or whatever of the constant vibrations, you can get like some minor nerve damage, which can take months to heal, but yeah, you got to hit some pretty, pretty rough, like washboard continuously to get that happening. You know? Yeah. I mean, I was on washboard for a week straight with a loaded bike. So 
I mean, there, there was almost no break from it. It was just, if I'm moving, I'm, I'm bouncing. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, the woman I was dating at the time was a doctor. So when my hands kept tingling for, you know, I'm like, this is like day four, day five. I'm on, since I was on the asphalt and like my hands are still doing this, like what is going on? And, uh, she said it was repetitive stress injury and she was just sort of like, take it easy and hope it, hope it goes away because there's really nothing you can do at this point yeah and yeah and, and like <laughs> i'm a musician like did i just ruin my hands I, I was really nervous about that but i just she she had me do some some stretches to to kind of push my fingers back yeah just stretch to... all that out and yeah and after after a couple of days it it lessened and then it eventually went away but that was wild you know that was one of those things. Like if I end up um, able to do this ride and, and surviving it and making it to Kilimanjaro, that's great. But it it's not necessarily like live or die or yes or no. It's like if, if I end up with a mm-hmm. permanent injury as a result, like that that's not worth it. Like yeah. both of my hands were, were really hurting. And like I, I don't want to live the rest of my life with. Yeah, and you don't know. You don't realize that it's it's just a – it will get better. It could just take a while, you know, like yeah. depending how long and how much impact damage there is. Um, right, but then you're you're just on a bike alone, and and all you have to, you're just in your own thoughts, you know. So yeah, you're 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 you're, you're, you're dark places. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna lose my hands. You're your own worst enemy at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, so did you you climb Mount Kenya? Right? Was that kind of like a training run to to do Kilimanjaro, or was that just like, well, I'm here, so I might as well do it. Yeah, I mean both. It was uh, it was on the way, so why not? And it it, it was a comparable mountain to Kilimanjaro. It's like a thousand meters lower, but it's in the same part of the world, and it's still like a five thousand meter peak, right? So yeah, it was not nothing. It it, it was a big hill, but the uh, um for for me, it was like I want to see what my body can do. Mm-hmm on this mountain where I don't, I don't, I wasn't like emotionally invested in it. So I'm like, if I'm going up this mountain and something is wrong and I need to turn around and go down, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that. That'll be an easier decision to make. I'd like to think that it'll be more logical in that situation because yeah. this mountain is not the goal. Yeah. Right? And if you need it like, Oh, I don't have this and I need it. And I should sort that out when I get to Nairobi. So I have it for yeah. Kilimanjaro or whatever. Right, and just seeing what my body was going to do because at that point mm-hmm. you know, I've been on the bike a month and a half or something and and um, I was really curious like when I start walking for a couple of days instead of cycling, what's it going to feel like? And I'll tell you, like my, my, my knees and thighs felt really strong but my feet hurt constantly because now my feet are taking the abuse of, of walking on rocks and things yeah just being littles. um and my hips my hips hurt more than than i thought possible just from from going out and backpacking um just because i wasn't using them on the bike so those muscles had atrophied and i wasn't putting in the work to keep those muscles uh tuned enough to do the climb so i'm glad i discovered that on mount kenya before trying kilimanjaro yeah good point yeah. All right. So take us, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
Yeah, so climbing Kilimanjaro, that's pretty epic. Um, I think the biggest peak I've ever climbed was just a hair under 4,100 meters, and that was in Malaysia. Um, This is like 5,200 or something, or 5,000 something, 100. Um, It's 5,895. Yeah, Kilimanjaro. Yeah, sorry, I was thinking Mount Kenya. Yeah, yeah, so Mount Kenya was around 5,000, right? Yeah, a little shy of 5,000. Just shy. uh, Kilimanjaro is a little shy of six. That's amazing. Um, Yeah, it's not too far from, like, when you hit that Kenyan border, right? You're not too far from Mount Kilimanjaro, so you can start seeing it approaching in the distance. What's that like? That was, like, uh, I don't know, meeting a stranger. (laughs) It was, like... uh, I I had thought about this mountain for so long. I was so it'd become this obsession, like going to this mountain. Um, I'd looked at every photo available on the internet. For yeah, I talked to people who'd been there. You know, like um, I'd received so many descriptions. So I was like, when I see this mountain, what it's it's going to be this this majestic thing in the distance but really it was like boxed in by clouds oh okay yeah i couldn't see it but i knew i was already starting to ascend it Uh, the road started climbing up and i'm getting closer and i'm like i'm actually already going up the base of this thing a little bit um and yeah it really didn't open up for me until uh, my second or third day on the mountain on the trek okay Um, i was able to get above the clouds yeah it's always above the clouds and beyond so yeah it's, it's hard to see sometimes it's always intimidating when you look on the map too and you see the you see the mountain and there's just this really really big circle around the mountain and you know that that's the road that people drive around the mountain on you know so that's how far it is so people will go 50 miles out of their way <laughs> to avoid it yeah yeah so did you cross the border and then you were like right there ready to go or did you head to the capital i don't remember um in tanzania um yeah i crossed the border and that was um when i met up with a, a cycling group okay. called tour de afrique yeah and it's a it's a cycling club or a, like a tour company that uh guides bicycle tours between cairo and cape town oh okay um, i don't know if they still do it but but back then they were and they were like 10th year and uh i just met up with them by chance I, I didn't know that they were out there wasn't seeking them but i i just got up from camp one day and went out to the road and i caught the last cyclist in their in their line heading out that morning this guy named gabe and he was one of the staff workers he's like yeah i'm taking up the rear so if anybody has like a flat tire he's like i got a pump i got a med kit oh, he, was, nice. he was the guy in the back for the day um it's the whole thing like if i had been 30 seconds later coming out of camp, I would have never known that there were a hundred cyclists ahead of me going in the same direction. (laughs) So I caught him and he was talking about this tour company. He's like, Hey, we got a big camp. He's like, if you can make it a hundred miles today, I was like, okay, let's do it. So I wasn't planning to ride a hundred miles, but we rode all the way to the Tanzania border. This was Southern Kenya. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Make it to the border. I got to hang out at their camp and eat their food and just like be with a whole bunch of cyclists doing some, some crazy stuff and telling stories and there's a real like morale boost. And I'm like, okay, there's other crazy people out here doing this too. I'm not the and only then, one. <laughs> the only one. Yeah. And then we crossed into Tanzania together, another about hundred miles down to uh, a city called Arusha. 
yeah and then we split we split ways from there so i had those two days riding with them all and uh uh then took some time off in arusha my my cousin who i mentioned earlier she's married to a man from rwanda his brother also from rwanda was living in arusha at the time oh that's so cool i met up with him and spent a week at his house and yeah just stayed with his family and just the, an, another just unexpected uh, uh, turn of events where mm-hmm. the, like not, not only did I meet up with this like massive group of people cycling the same way I'm going and like that was a huge morale boost it's like now I'm in this guy's home and we have this family connection in a way and um, I can just sleep in and eat cereal and sort of live like a, a lazy bum teenager and and decompress a little bit yeah so i did that for for a whole week before i went over to kilimanjaro which really really helped nice so you you never rode over there first huh you just kind of just took that whole decompression time yeah i was like this this is a good situation i'm gonna i'm gonna let this ride and did you bring your bike up kilimanjaro did you ride part way up at all or what was the what was the plan there I rode to the park entrance. Okay. Um, I don't know what that elevation is. But it, was, it was a long paved hill up to the and and there's there's little towns and villages the whole mm-hmm. way up. So I got to the park entrance, um, and I knew from there I was going to start walking. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's the end of the cycling route for me. Went back down the mountain, had a lot of fun. It was a crazy downhill. Um, checked to do a hotel, and then got connected with a Peace Corps volunteer down there, gave the bike to him, and he ended up using it as a, a reward for an essay contest at the school he was working at. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it, and I know I had talked about like how the, how the bike had failed me a couple times, but when I was in Nairobi, it got rebuilt end to end by, by a really good mechanic there. Um, oh, I saw that so, video. That guy super passionate. Yeah. Yeah. That guy's solid. Yeah. Um, and he he really made the bike like like new again um it was amazing what he was able to do in his shop just in the back of his house and despite all its abuse like new rear wheel uh new shifters and i was like okay you know new chain this thing's good to go so when i gave it to the peace corps volunteer i I didn't want i was like i don't want to give a kid a bike that's just like a piece of garbage right yeah it felt good that it had been rebuilt and um, a boy named Ebenezer wrote the winning essay. He inherited the bike. Sweet. And then last year when I was writing the book, you know, 10 years had passed. Um, through that Peace Corps volunteer, I reached out to Ebenezer and he's like, yeah, my brother's still riding it. So that bike uh, is still in epic. Tanzania being ridden by him and his brother. Yeah, I don't know if you know I'm a teacher, so it's it's really great. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, did you know you were going to give it to this Peace Corps volunteer? Like, was this all planned ahead of time or was it just kind of no. kind of happened organically no, no, no plan yeah it just came together like a, a day or two before i got to town ah, amazing and uh so yeah climbing the mountain i believe you said at the first part that kilimanjaro was kind of swamped in with clouds and the first three days you had essentially no views and probably lots of rain or moisture anyways yeah, i was there in the rainy season so it was you know, not not the great vistas I'd hoped for. Because of course, every every photo you see of Kilimanjaro online is like during perfect weather. For which, sure. Yeah, you get a lot of bright sunny days in Tanzania, but not when I was there. So I was, 
on one hand like disappointed like i really want to see this mountain i've come yeah. all this way i've been i've been thinking about it for years now but also it ended it like like adding even more to my anticipation like mm-hmm. i knew it was going to be on the mountain for a couple days and the first two days i, I don't get to see the summit i'm like yeah what's up there like this is gonna be nuts right so when the clouds finally break and we're above the cloud line and the sun is setting and i'm just looking at the glacier just lit up by the evening sun just glowing gold up there in the sky i'm like wow Mm -hmm. you know what a journey to get here what a beautiful mountain and you know just a couple more days work and i'm gonna stand on top of that thing yeah when i lived in malaysia i climbed um mount kinabalu in uh in borneo and similar i got to the top and i had no real view it was just the clouds below me like it was completely socked in you know but still an epic epic adventure uh to get up there and then down and still totally worth it like just amazing you know so yeah yeah i hear you awesome so yeah so you wrote a book um tell us again the name of the book book is called from afar and uh it is one man's human powered adventure from the lowest point on the African continent to the summit of its highest mountain. Awesome. And I'm sure that uh, there's a lot more into the book than, than what we talked about today. Um, you did mention uh, when we chatted before that you've done a few, I mean, obviously it's, it's been harder. He can't do any big long touring. I think you had wife and kids now and you know, nine to five job, as you mentioned. Um, but you have continued to or tried to continue to do some low to high type adventures. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, really low to high Africa only could have happened at that time. Right. Like I, I had finished a four or five year career push and it was over. So I had this big, big chunk of time with, with no real plan afterward. Um, so yeah, I don't, uh, I don't have the opportunity to take, a couple months off anymore mm-hmm. um no kids but yeah i'm married and i've got a job so sorry about that it's, uh, yeah hard to uh um squeeze in something like that grand yeah so, yeah so a friend of mine uh american guy we met in ethiopia actually um we're looking at islands around the world like what are the tallest islands and you mentioned kinabalu and borneo mm-hmm. like that's one of them it's one of the oh yeah yeah, it has a mountain on it that's one of the highest mountains on any island in the world, right? Yeah. A lot of them are in Indonesia. Um, I've so climbed a are, few of them. <laughs> yeah. But we're, we're trying to go from sea level, from the lowest point on these islands, with our bikes, with our feet, with skis, whatever. Oh, uh, cool. Up to the summits. Yeah. So will this so be, as you go through this, I, I guess you like Maui, right? Or is it Maui in Hawaii that has the, the really big high mountain? Or is it one of the other islands? I forget which one. No Hawaii's coming. I mean, we, we kind of drew like an, an arbitrary line, right? At um, 3,000 meters. Okay. Really? Because if above 3,000 meters, there's 21 islands. Like, that's a nice round number. So yeah. let's do 3,000 meters and above. Um, so two of the Hawaiian islands fall into that category. Maui is one. And I went from sea level up to the summit on bikes with my wife. And. Uh, the other one's just Hawaii, the big island. Okay. And I haven't done that one yet. But yeah, I did Maui with my wife um, and then with my friend James from Ethiopia. Uh, we went to the island of Bioko, which is in Equatorial Guinea. Okay. 
in West Africa and we ascended that mountain. Uh, that was a one day ride. We did not have permission to stay on the mountain at all. So we had to ascend 10,000 feet and back down in a day, which uh, for me at the time, that was, that was an early ride. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to make it. It started getting late in the afternoon. I'm like, oh, there's still a lot more. What kind of bike did you use for that one? Um, I'm assuming I, the bike has gotten better since. Yeah, yeah, I have a steel frame touring bike um, that I use for everything, but I just stripped it down to be as long oh, okay. as possible. And yeah, I was like, we don't like we don't have permission to stay overnight. So yeah, like no no tent or anything. Um, he was on his tri bike, which weighed nothing. He was on a oh, so is it was it a paved road then, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a paved. Okay, road. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, um, I could just I imagine like, this. <laughs> he would have been destroyed yeah 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 no that was that was a beautiful road um and again like some rain we got boxed in but we were able to get permission from the park to go all the way to the summit which a lot of people get turned around just before the top okay so even when we set out that morning we're like we're not sure if we're gonna actually get all the way up this thing but when we got up top they were like yeah your paperwork's good and we went so what year did you do that 2018, 19. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So is Mount Fuji on that as well then? Because, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be. Yeah, Mount Fuji. That'll be sweet. Uh, yeah. There's, and yeah, some of them look look really just like awesome islands too. So like, I think that's a great way. Um, you know, I'm, I may not necessarily go to Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, I may not seek it out. Um, just I don't live in that part of the world. Yeah. But it's one of the tallest islands. So let's go out there and let's let's take a week and let's kick it around Taiwan and let's let's go climb up. Yeah. This, yeah. And um, Indonesia's got a bunch because like Sumatra has um I forget the name of it, but it's right by the Kawa Ijen, uh, right near the big lake Toba. Um yeah. Borneo or sorry, not Borneo, I was gonna say uh um uh, Java Island has like Bromo and what's it called? The one that right, mm -hmm. the big ones right near it. Um, yeah. So every, every Island there, it's pretty much all of Indonesia's islands have a really tall freaking yeah. mountain on them. <laughs> Indonesia, different parts of Africa, Greenland. Mm. There's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun list and we're in no hurry. It's like, you got a lifetime. Gonna, yeah. Yeah. When the opportunity presents itself, we take a week or a long weekend or whatever we need and, and we go do one. So um, last year, I guess it was this year, um, a few months back. Um, I was in South America. James was in D.C., so we met halfway in the Dominican Republic and Island of Hispaniola. It's another one on the list. So sweet. Spent a, a week cycling around the Dominican Republic. It was it was really great. No, that's good. And you got two your two friends, and you're on the same mission. So it's it's a great way to to reconnect. You know, because sometimes a year could go by where you don't see each other, especially with your job. If you're posted somewhere, or it could be even a couple of years at times. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, let's go do this. And it's like, you well, never skipped exactly a beat. It. Right. We, we hadn't seen each other because of the pandemic and you know, uh, yeah. yeah, just let's just like the good old days. Let's hop on the bikes. And yeah. Let's go do something. Oh, that's amazing. You know, somewhat ill-advised. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to reading your book and, um, yeah, and to, I'm going to have to check out some of these islands that uh, I, I might have to start Googling these and see where you're going. <laughs> you should make a website if you haven't already. I don't know. Uh, James has, and it should be live um, pretty soon. So hopefully oh, cool. before this gets released. Yeah, All right, cool. Yeah, shoot me, a, shoot me a message with a link, and I'll add it. Even if it's after, I can just always throw it in the show notes. Okay.
Great. Um, anything else? Anything I missed that you want to bring up? No, I think we did the skid dive top to bottom. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm going to end the recording and say thank you, but you don't have to hang up. We can always chat a bit more. So, um, yeah, Kyle, thanks for being on the podcast and uh, keep on pedaling. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. I just want to thank Kyle real quick for taking the time to be on the podcast and for sending me a copy of his book. I'm really looking forward to read it once I have a little bit more time. And I think it's really good. Uh, this really shows that you don't have to be an experienced bike tour to take on parts of Africa. You know, it just takes a little bit of willpower, a dream, a plan, and then you can do it. All right. So thank you, Kyle, and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me to keep going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at chris at biketouradventures.com or go to the website biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and the touring tips page. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bike tour adventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, helping me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and continue to produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.